19, John chapter 19, we further our study in the Gospel of John. Our text before us is the climax of the chaos. Jesus was arrested in the night on Thursday night and then was whisked away and turned over to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. They put him through a series of kangaroo courts, one before Annas and then another before Caiaphas and then another before all of the Sanhedrin together. Officially condemning him, deeming him worthy of death, they shuttled him off to the Romans. First to Pilate who said, I see nothing wrong with this man, why do you want to kill him? They continued to demand that he die. Pilate found out that he was from Galilee, and so he sent him to Herod, who was the tetrarch of Galilee at the time. And he, before Herod, was silent, refused to answer Herod's ridiculous questions. Was then brought back before Pilate, and as he was mocked as a fake king, beaten and spit on and his beard plucked, he then was turned over to be flogged scourged by the Romans, taken within an inch of his life. Then a crown of thorns pressed upon his head, a purple robe put upon his bloodied back. And now he comes to the end of this last trial. That is our text this morning. Pilate, as you know, has tried three times already to release Jesus. He's tried to wiggle his way out of this political pickle that he's in. He'll do so two more times in our text, so a total of five times. He'll try to get out of crucifying Jesus. As we've walked one verse at a time through this chaotic scene, we've gazed frequently at our Lord, haven't we? And we've seen our Lord to be a a humble, suffering servant. Everything Isaiah, 700 years prior, prophesied him to be, we've seen him to be. He's proven to be the lamb afflicted and ultimately sacrificed for us. We've seen his humility and his compassion, his submission to the Father, his resolve to, to be acquitted for, against the charges that have been raised against him, but also to be condemned to die on a Roman cross. It's an amazing, amazing account. Luke 19 Verse 7 says this, the Jews answered him, this is in the trial before Pilate, these are the Sanhedrin responding to Pilate saying, I find no guilt in him. They answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. On March 30th, 1981, our country faced one of its greatest threats of control and authority. Our president, Ronald Reagan, had been shot and was seriously injured and was about to be whisked into emergency surgery. As he's being prepped for surgery and about to head into the surgical room, he turned to his close friend, Ed Meese, who was a special counsel to the president. And he said to Ed, who's minding the store? What he meant by that is who's in charge when I'm knocked out and they're rooting around in my gut for this bullet? Well, it was a, a question that not only he would ask, but that many others would ask. In fact, just a few minutes later in the press briefing room of the White House, journalists were asking the deputy White House press secretary the very same question. In fact, they put it to him, who is in charge? Who's running the government in the absence of President Reagan? Well, the deputy press secretary, as you can imagine yourself in that moment, not knowing how to answer, fumbled and said, I cannot answer that question at this time, which is code for, I have no idea. And everyone watching that press debriefing knew. No one knew what was going on. A floor below in the White House in the the situation room, the war room of the White House, the president's cabinet sat around a table trying to figure out what do we do next in this whole situation of chaos. And it would seem to be an easy decision because the next in line is obviously the vice president. But the vice president was currently in an airplane over Texas on his way back from Texas and a speech he had given or was supposed to give back to D.C. when he heard that Reagan had been shot. And so now the question is, who's next in line in the chain of command? Remember, this is 1981. The Cold War is still raging with Russia. They have nuclear subs ready on a moment's notice to inch closer to our shore and launch nuclear missiles. And the people in the press or in the the war room knew that was the reality, and they knew that they had to stop the bleeding of the chaos. They had to let people know. No, listen, everything's okay. We know who's in charge. But they sat around the table saying, who's in charge? And so as they wrestled through this question and in this chaos, one man suddenly took the reins, filled the vacuum of leadership, and his name was General Alexander Haig. He was the Secretary of State, and he had long sought to expand his power. Everyone knew that. He thought he didn't have enough control in the government, and he was about to get some more. And now was his perfect opportunity. And so he boldly declared to the startled cabinet, the helm is right here, as a military general alone could say. The helm is right here. And that means in this chair right now, constitutionally, until the vice president gets here. He looked around the room waiting for someone to challenge him. Everyone was too scared to say a word. They didn't know what to do. And so General Haig got up, said, where's the press room? and marched himself right to the press room and right to the pulpit, the lectern in the press room, and declared on live TV in front of a national and an international audience, as of now, I am in control of the White House. Constitutionally, actually, he was wrong. It was the Speaker of the House who was next up to be in charge of the government. 
But his bravado and his quick thinking filled the leadership vacuum in the chaotic moment. This really is no different from how politically charged moments of chaos go, isn't it? This is how it usually happens. The the person who acts first and talks the loudest and carries the biggest stick usually is the one who ends up in control, or at least they think they are. And everyone else might think they are or think someone else is, but truth be told, they're not really in charge either. That's essentially the scene that we have in John 19. As the chaos swirls around Jesus, this dilemma rises to the top. Who is in charge? And like a twin sister tornado, another dilemma spinning right next to it is, who is guilty? Those are the two questions, the two dilemmas we have on our plate this morning, is who is in charge and who's actually at fault? Who's actually guilty here? Consider that first one, who's in charge? Is Pilate in charge? It would appear so, right? He's the Roman governor on the scene. It kind of looks that way. He's seeking to release Jesus. He seems poised to do that. But then the Jews level another charge against Jesus in verse 7 and stop him in his tracks. Up to this point, they had tried the political tactic. They, They had said that Jesus was making himself a king, Pilate, so you need to get rid of him. He's an insurrectionist. Well, that wasn't working. Pilate had investigated that claim, and now he's ready to release him. He's not trying to be king. So now they go the religious route, and essentially what they're saying is, listen, you're here to protect us and our religion, and you're here to keep the peace. And we're just telling you, if you don't keep the peace in this situation and protect our religious exercise and don't get rid of this guy, you're going to have trouble. And so they throw this religious accusation on him. He made himself the son of God, and by our law, he must die. Pilate's reaction to this is not one of power and authority, is it? If Pilate's in charge, maybe he should just say, you know what, you're right, crucify him. Instead, Pilate responds with increased fear. And you have to ask, why is he so afraid? I mean, I thought he was in charge, right? What's there to be afraid of? Just just pull the trigger, Pilate. Just make the decision and move on with life. It's just a small little kerfuffle in your little corner of the Roman Empire. What's the big deal? But he's full of fear. Likely, it's a reaction of superstitious fear. We don't really know. We're guessing a little bit. But likely, it's a superstitious fear. He's a Roman by by all uh, understandings. He's heard all the, the Roman and Greek mythology of the gods coming down, either to, to be a man or to dwell with men to accomplish some purpose. He's got some confusion about the realities and the differences between that which is human and that which is divine, which is why he asked Jesus earlier, what is truth? He's a skeptic. He's in that line of philosophy. He's not sure what's true, but he's heard the rumors. And now he's seen this man in front of him act in, in ways he's seen no other man act. Ways that have captured the attention of Pilate so much so that he's trying to get rid of this guy. He's not your average run-of-the-mill criminal. He's not even your average run-of-the-mill human. And so Pilate's trying to get out from under this, and now he is afraid. Wait a second, now he says he's the son of God. Can he be something different than what I've thought? And so he asks him, where are you from? What he means is, what's your origin? Are you human? Are you divine? Are you some mix of both? Jesus then refuses to answer the question. 
which presses the dilemma further, doesn't it? Who's in charge? Who is in charge? Why didn't Jesus answer the question? Why didn't he just tell Pilate, yes, I am the son of God and the son of man? Why wasn't he direct and straightforward with Pilate? Well, he was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. He had already said enough and done enough to answer the question. And he knew the motivation in the heart of Pilate in asking the question. He was not asking for actual truth-filled answers. He was looking for a way out of this situation. And really, what could Jesus say that would have convinced Pilate of the truth? Had he said, yes, I am the Son of God, Pilate would have heard that through his Roman mythology lens. And it would have added to Pilate's condemnation, I am convinced. More revelation of who Jesus was would have made Pilate's condemnation all the more severe. And so he remains silent. And this raises Pilate's fear to a level of anger. And that's what we see in verse 10. He essentially says to Jesus, don't you know who's in charge here? And usually when you have to say that, dads, in the home, you've lost it at that point. You probably should go pray and then come back and deal with the situation. Pilate's mad. How dare you not answer me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and to crucify you? In other words, answer the question. And, and beyond that, Jesus, you should be pleading for me, with me for your life. I mean, doesn't the Savior need saved here? That's Pilate's thought. Maybe the Jewish leaders are in control. Obviously, Pilate isn't, so maybe the Jewish leaders are. Maybe they're the ones really pulling the strings, and it kind of looks that way, doesn't it? I mean, Pilate says in verse 10 that he's the one who has this authority, but we know that's a, an empty claim, isn't it? He doesn't have the authority here. I mean, he's technically right. He's the one who will sit on the Bema seat and finally turn Jesus over to be crucified, but he is not the one calling the shots here, is he? If he were, Jesus would have been released. That is clear in the text. And so in verse 12, we see very clearly that Pilate is a slave to the political powers that are playing this game. In fact, Pilate's more of a captive than Jesus is. Pilate's enslaved to his own fear and political powerhouses around him. So maybe the Jewish leaders are in control. As Pilate seeks to release Jesus, they respond with this political trump card, don't they, in verse 12? It's, it's comical if it weren't ridiculous. From then on, it says, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They're, they're doing Pilate's job for him. And in this little game of chess, they have just checkmated him. And they have said to him, if you do not crucify Jesus and you release him, your career and possibly your life are over. They use a, a phrase that in a few decades will become a technical phrase, friend of Caesar. The early first century uh, historians and philosophers would use that phrase to speak of someone who was loyal to Caesar no matter the cost. And so they, they use this phrase, it's kind of in its development stage in 33 AD when they say it here, but the, the insinuation is clear. Are you on Caesar's side or are you on your own side? And if you let Jesus go, listen, Pilate, we're going to tell Caesar that you're on your own side. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you a little bit of the background of Pilate, which raises the ante here, doesn't it? That Pilate, the, the one who had bargained for Pilate to get put in this position of, of king or, or governor of Judea, was a man by the name of Sejanus. He was Emperor Tiberius' right-hand man. Tiberius trusted him to a fault. But in 31 AD, Tiberius got convinced by someone else that Sejanus was the problem. And that Sejanus was treasonous against Tiberius, and that Sejanus needed to die. And so Tiberius had issued the order, and Sejanus had been killed for treason. And now everyone that Sejanus had been friends with and that he had worked to have put in place, namely Pontius Pilate, were now under suspicion by Tiberius. And believe me, these Sanhedrin know that. And they're using that card, and they're throwing it on the table, and they're saying to Pilate, listen, there is no way out of this. You will order the crucifixion of this man. And so I ask you again, are the Jews running the show? Are they in charge? Well, if they're in charge, why do they act like they do in verses 14 and 15? So when Pilate parades Jesus before them and says to them, Behold your king, why do they say to him and declare to him, an answer of authority. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Really? Really? That's what you're going to go with? We have no king but Caesar. I mean, this is so obviously duplicitous, they should have gotten laughed out of the room. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew that the Jews were not loyal to Caesar. They made it very clear that their law said no man from any other bloodline should rule over them. And they were looking and fighting in every way they could to get out from under Roman rule. But here, because it fits the situation and the moment, they declare blind allegiance to Caesar. Now, the irony of the situation as you follow history is that they will know no other king but Caesar. This generation will always be under Caesar's thumb. And in fact, in 70 AD, when another generation of of Jewish zealots tries to overthrow Rome, they will get squashed and Jerusalem will get destroyed and the people of Israel will get dispersed. So they say more than they know here. We have no king but Caesar. Indeed, indeed, he is your king. But for now, it fits their agenda to claim that Caesar is in charge and they're loyal to him. But I ask you, is Caesar in charge? Is Caesar the one who can make this decision? Can they text Caesar and say, hey, I'm dealing with this really difficult situation. Should Jesus die or live? Please reply quickly. Of course not. Not even a carrier pigeon would make it there and back in time to give him an answer. Caesar has no idea this is happening. So you can name his name and say he's in charge, but he's not in charge. He's not running this show. So I ask you, who is in charge here? Who's calling the shots? Maybe there's an uncontrolled chaos here that is running the show. Maybe it's fate or chance, just this kind of nebulous idea that, that, you know, just all these things just kind of work out. And it just so happens to be that this is how it went, and bless God, it worked for our salvation. Is that what's going on here? Is that what's in control? Some kind of nameless fate? Well, the clue to answer our question 
is found in verse 11. Jesus says to Pilate, that you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That phrase, from above, is just one word in the Greek, anothane, and it is the key to our answer. It's the same word Jesus used in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus about the new birth. He said, you must be, if a man's going to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born from above. Same word. What is Jesus saying to Pilate then? It, by the way, is the same word used in verse 23 when it, John describes the, the tunic of Jesus, that it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom or from above, anothing. So Jesus is saying to Pilate that your authority, Pilate, in this situation is an extension of authority from another source. So really, Pilate, you're not in charge either, though you think you are. Your authority is delegated to you. Well, what really then is Jesus saying? Think about that with me. Is he simply saying that, Pilate, your authority is actually Caesar's authority delegated to you on the ground to make this decision? Well, in part, yes. So it's kind of a Romans 13 model answer, that all authority is given by God and given to wield the sword for justice. So is Jesus saying that? Well, yeah, in part he is. And in fact, as I read the text, I think Jesus is in some way giving a green light to Pilate to order his execution. Because Pilate's been trying to get out of it every way he can. And Jesus has been honest and forthright and faithful. And now he is saying to Pilate, listen, this is the way forward. I think that's what he means when he goes on to say, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. He's letting Pilate know, listen, this is the only way forward And there's someone beyond you who's going to be held more accountable. That one who handed Jesus over to Pilate obviously is Caiaphas, who ordered that he be taken to the Roman governor to be condemned to die. Jesus is not letting Pilate off the hook, but he's saying this has to happen. But he's saying more than that, isn't he? Isn't he pointing beyond Caesar and beyond delegated human governmental authority? Isn't he raising our view, at least, as those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and his words here? Isn't he taking our eyes and lifting them to a sovereign father? Isn't he affirming that he's come to do the Father's will? Isn't he saying to us that this is the culmination of that will? That though Pilate has a part here, though Caiaphas has a part here, though the Jewish crowd has a part here, though the soldiers have a part here, though we hear our own voices crying out in scorn and mockery here as sinners rebellious against God, even though we all have a part here, isn't Jesus saying, I am doing that which was foreordained to me, for me to do by a higher authority? In fact, I think that's exactly what he's saying. And then you have to wrestle with, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's in heaven like a master puppeteer, pulling on the strings of humanity at just the right time, making sure they make this decision or that so that the play goes just like God wants it to go? Is that what it means? Or does it mean that These men have the freedom of will so as to choose whatever it is they want to choose, 
however they want to choose it, and God just responds to their choice. And in reaction, works these things out to to kind of eventually funnel to what he wanted to have happen. There's obviously two ditches to avoid here. You see that, I hope, by how I framed the question. The one ditch to avoid is to say that God, in his sovereignty, makes humanity puppets of his will. That when he decides and determines to do something, we just go along and he's, he's calling the shots for us. And so there's no real guilt for our choice, if that's true. The other ditch to avoid on this road is that of saying that God really doesn't have control. That he's responding, that he's, he's a master at responding and reacting, but he doesn't really actually know how it's going to turn out either. And these moral agents are just making decisions, and, and on the fly, he's trying to figure it out. Well, Scripture is clear, that is not how this went down. I think it would be helpful for you to hear how the apostles themselves talk about this very event and how they describe the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man playing together on this scene. The first is Peter in Acts 2. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll just read it as well. Acts 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost as he speaks to that Jewish crowd of their guilt before God says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, so who's, who's working this out from before, before creation? It is God. His definite plan and foreknowledge. And then, Jesus, and then Peter says, you, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's assigning guilt They've made a real choice, a choice that is worthy of eternal condemnation before a holy God. They were not puppets on God's stage, but their decisions were foreordained by God and worked out in the course of human history in a way that blows our limited minds, right? The text goes on in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John appear before the Sanhedrin and are told, don't ever preach in the name of Jesus again. And they return to the house of Christians who are praying for them. And they gather and they, they give their report and then they pray together. And as they pray, they rehearse all the times that the world came against the church and how God always intervened. And their question is, why did the nations rage? Verses 27 and 28 of Acts 4 They pray this way, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the early church understood that there is a a compatibilism. They go together, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That divine intentions and human intentions come together to bring about the greatest event of human history, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. That God had a worked out plan that came to pass in the course of events. This is a doctrine I mentioned of biblical compatibilism. Expresses the truth that God has ordained all things and is working them together to accomplish his will, and humans are free moral agents making real choices. 
Now, when I say free, I don't want you to think that we're free from everything. I mean to say we have real choices to make, but freedom is shaped by our nature. We're enslaved, as the scriptures say, to our own sinfulness, and we're shaped by our own sinful desires. And so these decisions in John 19 are in line with Pilate and the chief priest's sinful natures. This is their depravity on display, ordained by God, worked to accomplish his purposes. It is an amazing display of the glory of our sovereignly wise and all-powerful God. And so I say to you, my brother or sister, if this is true in John 19, can this be true on August 13th, 2023 in your life? As things swirl in chaos around you, as governments vie for power, as politicians speak the loudest and seek to carry the biggest stick and win the highest office in the world, as corruption continues to advance and increase, as humanity turns its back further on the Lord who made them and goes their own way further into the darkness of sinfulness, as chaos spins around you, Can you trust the sovereign God of John 19 that his plan is perfectly being worked out in ways beyond your comprehension and in ways in which people will truly be held responsible? Can you trust him? And you say, well, I've trusted him for my salvation. This Jesus of John 19 is my only hope. And if he is not your only hope, may today be the day where he becomes your only hope. For indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. But for the rest of us who know this Jesus, we say we trust him for that, that that this worked out for our salvation. And beloved, can you trust him tomorrow? For him to continue with his steadfast love to work all these things out for your good and for his glory. As chaos swirls, who's in control? The answer is the Lord, our God. The second dilemma is who is guilty? Who's guilty? You might think that's a strange question because the text ends with Jesus being handed over to be crucified. So the human answer would be Jesus is guilty. Well, you know that's not the answer. If that's the answer, we've lost our faith. We have no hope in this Jesus if he's sinful. He's not. He's guiltless. Pilate was right. Nothing worthy of condemnation in him. But that's the charge against him. The Sanhedrin insists that he must die because he made himself to be the Son of God. You see that word in verse 7, that phrase? Made himself to be the Son of God. They use it again in verse 12. They say he made himself to be the king. They can't fathom that maybe this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and is the king. No, that that can't be true. So he made himself to be that. He's playing a game with us. He's faking it. Therefore, he is blaspheming. They're basing their argument on Leviticus 24, verse 16, in which the law says anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must die. In fact, it says the whole congregation of the people of Israel must take him out and kill him. 
And they're saying, this Jesus has blasphemed, therefore he must die. This really has been their beef with Jesus all throughout. I mean, we're getting down to the the actual issue, aren't we? We saw this back in chapter 5. Remember that in chapter 5? He healed the the man on the Sabbath day, and and they were looking for a way to kill him. You remember what John said about that in chapter 5? He said they're trying to kill him because he's breaking their Sabbath rules and claiming to be that God is his father, making himself equal with God. This happens again in John 8, again in John 12. They just can't stand that Jesus would say, I am equal with the Father. They think he must die. Not only do the Jewish leaders land there, but Pilate lands there too, essentially. He doesn't ever say Jesus is guilty, but he does release Jesus to be crucified. So in essence, he's saying, for all time in history, Jesus deserved death. Pilate knows he's caught between crucifying an innocent man and losing his his standing with Caesar. So he brings Jesus out from inside the praetorium. It's an amazing account, by the way, of in and out from the the palace complex of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. Archaeology, by the way, has confirmed the spot where Gabbatha is, the stone pavement. If you didn't watch the video in the email, watch it this afternoon. It's an an amazing account of how archaeology again confirms the history of the Bible. On the west side of the city, Pilate brought Jesus in and out of the door and then eventually ascended the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And as he sat on that seat, he turned Jesus over to be crucified. He tried to get out of it again. Behold, your king as though maybe the crowd would finally come to their senses and say, yes, free him, release him. Instead, they scream and reply, away with him, crucify him. Shall you crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they said. And so what is Pilate's judgment? How does it end? He turns them over, turns him over to them to be crucified. It doesn't mean the Jews went and crucified him. It means he gave them over to their will. He submitted to their gain. He admitted defeat, and Jesus was crucified. The obvious irony here is that Jesus is not the guilty one at all. So I asked the question again, who is guilty? Well, both Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the crowd bear sin in this situation. We know that from verse 11 where Jesus says to Pilate, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In other words, both Pilate and the one who delivered Jesus over are sinning here. Jesus is referring, as I mentioned earlier, to Caiaphas as representative of all of the Jewish leaders. They're all guilty before the Lord. They all have greater sin. So the text is clear here. If you have increased revelation followed by rejection, that equals increased guilt. It's a a maxim of Scripture. It's a truism of the text of Scripture. If you've been given much, you're held accountable for much. And if you reject the much you have been given, your condemnation will be greater than those who have had less than you, which should stand as a massive warning to so many of us this morning. Have you submitted to the revelation you have received? 
Do you know this Jesus truly and really? Will you be rescued from condemnation on judgment day? Not because of anything you've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for you. These men are in the lineage of Aaron, these high priests, chief priests. They stand in between God and his people, offering up sacrifices to the Lord. They're responsible to lead the people of God, to follow the commands of God. They're experts in the law and the prophets. They know what Moses has said. They know what Isaiah has said. They know what Jeremiah has said. They know what Zechariah has said. And yet, they reject God in the flesh. Irrefutably proven to them, they reject him, and they have greater guilt. How is it that their sin is greater than Pilate's? Well, quite simply, they're guilty of the very things they accuse Jesus of. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, that he made himself to be the son of God when he wasn't in their minds. But in reality, that's exactly what they're doing here. They're rejecting him as their Messiah. They're placing themselves over him as his judges. They're determining that he must die. It's a fulfillment of John 1, verse 11, where John told us as a foreshadowing of the book that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the the fullness and the finality of the rejection of the children of Israel, of their legit Messiah. But then it is increased in our text. They blaspheme the Lord when they answer Pilate in verse 15 and they say, we have no king but Caesar. The law says very clearly, that there is one king over Israel, and it is the Lord Yahweh. Gideon says this in Judges 8. He says, when they were trying to get Gideon to be the king, he said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This was said by Samuel when they pushed Samuel, and God allowed for them to have a human king. And he's warning them about this reality. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. There is one king over Israel, and that is Yahweh God. And now the people of Israel, in rejection of their Messiah, say, we have no king but Caesar. You see, it's not Jesus who should have died on Good Friday for his sin, because he didn't have any. It's these Sanhedrin, these chief priests, who blaspheme the name of the Lord, their God, who should have died. These men would rather have Roman rule than Jesus as their king. They'd rather know the hard and heavy hand of Rome than to know the joy and glory of Messiah ruling from their throne in Jerusalem. The sobering and sad picture of the rebellious human heart. So I ask you as we close, who is in charge here? Who is managing and ordering all of the chaos of John 19? Answer, our sovereign, glorious Lord. I ask you, who is guilty here? You know who it's not. It's not Jesus, though he's condemned to die. It's everyone else in the scene who stands condemned, and yet they go free. And here we have a picture of the gospel, don't we? This is why Jesus came from heaven to earth. This is why he lived a sinless life. This is why he obeyed his father's will in every way. This is why he took on flesh and became a servant of all. It's to be condemned in the place of sinners when he was guiltless. 
man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give praise and honor and glory and blessing to you for rescuing us through the gift of your son. And we agree, what a savior. I pray for those among us who may still be under the curse of their sin. We plead with you, Father, to extend to them the grace of forgiveness that we know that they in this moment might be born from above, forgiven by the body and blood of Jesus and entered into your family. Lord, would you, by your grace, make that happen today? We also pray for us as believers that you would help us to walk forward in ways of, of humble obedience in light of this great sacrifice which has freed us from the penalty of our sins. Father, would you fill us with love for you, seeing your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.